As the gospel takes root in a person's life, a transformation begins. But the enemies of God will do anything they can to disrupt the change in a believer's life. In this lesson, we look at what Ephesians has to say about intentionally making the decision to take off who we were in our sin and to put on the new man. All this and more as we continue our year of the family. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. We'll turn, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to finish, we're not going to finish the chapter today, but we're going to work through the middle section. Um, if you were here last week, uh, we talked about uh, being unified in, in the Spirit, being unified in Christ. Um, if, you, uh, if you missed that lesson, I, I've, I've updated all the lessons on the podcast, so they're all up there. If you guys want to go back and listen. Um, one of the things that we discussed last week was that um, there's this image of of the church that Paul describes. So there's two things that he uses to describe the, um, the people of God. The first is that he's building us, he's building the church into a, um, into a, a building, right? A church. And he uses, a, he uses the church as an illustration that, that Christ is building us into a temple to himself. But then also, he is, he's creating us into one one flesh, and Jesus is the head of of the body, right? I'm not going to attempt to draw a human body, so yes, let's leave it at that. Um, but the idea is that we are um, we've been called to work together. Now, what he's going to do uh, today is he is is in this middle section, Paul's going to transition. He's going to start focusing on the transformation of the of the individuals. <coughs> within the body of Christ themselves. One of the things that we discussed last week was that um, since Christ is the head of the body, he uses the body, and since he uses it in such a crucial way to, to spread the gospel, what happens is that um, it bears to reason that a believer can't survive outside of Christian fellowship. First uh, John tells us that um, if we love God's people, that's a testament that we are truly his child. But... Um, we can't. Uh, we live in a generation that seems to undermine the credibility of being a part of a body of believers. Um, that somehow Christianity or faith is something that can be done solo, and that's just not the case. So, what Paul's going to talk about um, this morning in this section is he's going to talk about the transformation that happens and the choice that we have to be a part of that transformation. So, starting in verse 17, he starts off by saying this: "Therefore, because of what we talked about before, therefore this I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles will also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of evil for every kind of impurity with greediness. But you do not learn Christ in this way." If indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, but to put on the new man, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay, so we're going to start with the old man first. Okay, so he says, therefore, in verse 17, remember that always points us back. What is it there for? We want to point back and see, okay, what was the previous context? Paul has a way of, in his writing, he will make a point, and then he'll use that almost like links in a chain, and the links are connected by the word therefore. So so we start with the initial idea, 
therefore, 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 because of this, because of this, because of this. So he, he follows a progression of thought. So because of the work of Christ in the lives of his new army of followers, remember we talked about last week how Jesus has taken captive the captivity itself. That he has gone to the depths uh, of, of the earth, gone into death himself, and he has retrieved back for him those who are dead in sin. The picture of him um, changing the landscape of the battlefield and then distributing gifts to all of his, uh, those that he's conquered. In this section, Paul calls believers to lay aside their former lives of sin and pursue Christ's likeness. Okay? He's not saying this on his own authority. He says, in the Lord, right, in verse 17, that he is not saying, okay, I'm going to encourage you subtly to live different. He says, this is the commandment of Jesus Christ, that you live differently today than you, than you did before you trusted in him. And he points out some things about how the Gentiles walk. He says, now the Gentiles here is, a, is, is not about um, ethnicity. He's talking about spiritual identity. So he says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Don't walk as those who have no inheritance with a covenant, the people that have no connection to God. He says, walk instead uh, as, as Christ walked. So he uses some, some language here to describe what it looks like for those who are trapped in sin. He says that they live with futile minds. Feudal here means a mind that is depraved and bent towards deterioration. Just like he pointed out in chapter 2, how we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, remember what that means is that there's a path to walk on, and in sin, we are naturally pulled away from that path that God created us to live. That path is godliness. So to be dead in our trespasses and sins means to be walking with a bent perspective. So he's saying that those who are not believers have a futile mind. And what that means is that they have no ability to walk a path of righteousness. So Scripture teaches us in a couple of different places, in Galatians 5 and in Galatians 6, and also in John 16, that the fundamental difference between a believer and a non-believer is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Galatians chapter 5, if you, turn, turn your Bible over there real quick. Galatians is right before Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So turn back just a couple of pages. And beginning in verse 16, Paul says this to the church at Galatia, or the region of Galatia. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you want. Okay, so going back to this idea in Ephesians, that those who are... Um, who are Gentiles, who are disconnected from the covenant of God, that they walk with a feudal mind, what, means is, what it means is that they have a natural, um, a natural bent towards um, walking in sinfulness, and they have, no, they have no supernatural ability to pull themselves out of it. So, um, one of the challenges is that we, we live in a generation of people that, that says, well, People are inherently good, right? But that's not what Scripture teaches us. There's no When we don't have a relationship with God, we don't have the influence of the Holy Spirit, which means we have no godly influence. We have no influence for good. So what Paul is saying here is that the mind of a lost person is naturally depraved and bent towards seeking out sinfulness, not goodness. He says that their minds are darkened. The word here in Greek... Uh, means an endless resource for destruction. It implies a sinful mind that is creative. 
One of the things that scripture teaches us is that we have been made in God's image, right? And God is a creator. God is a creative being. And so he is always working things and making things new and, and um, redeeming the things that are broken. We see this in the complexities of the cell, down to the microscopic level, all the way up to the, to the macroscopic, where we see the, the complexities of the universe. God is a creator. And since we are made in his image, we are creators also. What he's saying here is that in their darkened mind, they use their credibility to build um, wicked things. Now, the human mind can do incredible things. We, we have done some amazing things, some feats of engineering over the last thousands of years. There are some people who take their creative nature and they build things that last for millennium. Think of the pyramids or the wonders of the world that, that we see that have been standing for hundreds or thousands of years. These are testimonies to the creativity of the human mind. But in the same way, the creativity that's driven by a sinful mind also has no limits of, of the destruction that it can bring. One example of this is, um, is the creation of photography in the, in the early 19th century. Most people don't realize that most of the media uh, inventions and revolutions that have happened in the last 200 years have been driven by pornography. As soon as the camera was invented, the primary thing that drove the photography industry was the ability to create and distribute pornography. Same thing is true with the movie industry when film came along. Same thing is true with the internet. Same thing is true. Sin follows uh, a creative mind. And people, um, they, they express that. In fact, all of, the, all of the advancements that are happening right now in virtual reality are being driven, in large part, by the pornography industry. Because they want to create a, a more realistic, erotic environment for their, um, their industry. But the thing about a sinful heart is that not only is it creative, not only is it futile, it's drawn away from godly things, but he says that they were alienated. They alienated themselves from the life of God because of their ignorance. Scripture tells us elsewhere that those who are lost have no ability to see the truth uh, because of the hardness of their heart. Romans 1 tells us that, that God presents himself to us, and in response, we can either choose to adhere to who He is and bend ourselves to His will, or we can choose to ignore Him, and what He will do is He will give us a convictionless life. The word that's used in the, in the King James Version is a reprobate life, a life that is void of any perception of, of conviction at all. This hardness of heart is something that leads to a calloused mind, a calloused um, understanding. The definition of this... Um, one, one scholar defined this as uh, to cease to feel pain for uh, or to be insensible to honor and shame. In other words, sin creates scar tissue on the mind. Um, all of us have cut ourselves in some form or fashion over our lifetime, and what happens? You form a scar from that injury. If you do that multiple times, what happens is you end up creating so much scar tissue that you lose the ability to feel in that part of your body. The nerves are severed, and so they can't, they can't uh, detect anything. This is an example of the way that our hearts are, what our, the way that our minds are. The, the death by a thousand cuts, it, it um, mutes our ability to be able to see and understand the truth. What Paul is saying then is also true now. I started to, to research some of this, and he uses some of the examples. Uh, he uses primarily the example of, of sexual impurity and greediness, this idea of, of uh, promiscuity. 
And um, it's interesting when science confirms Scripture because some articles that I read show that science, scientists can now show that sexual promiscuity increases the risk of many kinds of diseases, not just sexually transmitted diseases, but it can also affect your, your life and, and, and increase your likelihood of developing cancer, heart failure, heart disease, um, not to mention that it also leads to a, a decreased ability to have healthy relationships. The social toll is also incredible. Some scientists also believe that sexual promiscuity is a symptom of depression. Many people will try to, uh, to find uh, control over an uncontrolled aspect of their life in sexual promiscuity, whether that's digitally through pornography or through actual sexual partners. And the natural spiral of sin gradually moves from temptation to pleasure, from pleasure to loss of feeling, and then finally to death. It's amazing that God's Word speaks truth to the present from the past. That this idea that they have been um, habitually abused, abusing themselves, leads to a loss of ability to be able to feel, to be able to understand, to be able to be sensitive to rebuke. All of these things are the product of the person, the old man. He says that, they, uh, that their calloused heart... Um, derives them or drives them to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What he implies here by this language is someone who has lost all ability to control themselves sexually to the point of obsessive excess. Um, Paul's point here is that sin corrupts us in every way, in every aspect of who we are, in our body, in our soul, and in our spirit. Our body physically, because it changes our biochemistry, uh, our, our soul, because it changes our mind, our will, and our emotions, what we think, how we feel about what we think, and the priorities that we have, and our spirit, our ability to be able to hear and understand and discern the will of God. So he says that in, in, your, in, in their lostness, these, these lost people don't understand what is happening. In other words, sin doesn't make us stupid. It makes us dangerous to ourselves and to other people. And... We honestly, we li- I, I, had, I had a guy when I was a teenager, a leader in the church, tell me that um, he thought that, that masturbation was just a natural expression of, of the human condition and that it wasn't doing anything wrong with it. But as I have learned and as I've studied addiction behavior and uh, the, the aspects of addiction within the human race, I've realized that he is absolutely wrong. That everything that has to do with... with um, Sexuality and with sinfulness is driven by, by, by an unbiblical perspective of life. And we have to remember that there are things that we, that we, we put parameters around our marriages not because we, um, we're, we're building this pharisaical, this, this legalistic um, mindset or framework around our families. We do this because we understand that it's, that it's harmful to us and to our families. Right? That if we, that, that as Scripture says, the man doesn't belong to himself, he belongs to his wife, and the wife does not belong to herself, she belongs to the husband. God has given us these things on purpose so that we will be bonded together. But the sinful mind doesn't see that. The sinful mind seeks out pleasure, it seeks out excess. He's saying that their, um, their critical thinking skills are not only missing a compass, but they are bent towards sinfulness and erratic emotions. One of the things that I have noticed is that the first sign 
of sexual addiction is a propensity towards anger, a short temper. Um, and that's true not just with sexual temptation or sexual sin, but it's also true with other kinds of sin. Is that if somebody is quick to anger, that means that there is something in their life that is keeping them um, hyper-aware or hyper-insecure um, uh, about their situation. And so they will lash out whenever they're challenged in the, in the minute, most minute ways. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he said that the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, what Jesus is saying in the context of Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying that what a person focuses on is going to determine what they will become or who they will become. That there is no limit. We tend to think, okay, well, this, this, this poor decision is just going to compromise me for this moment, and I'll get over it, and we'll move on. But what happens is that there is a natural gravitational pull towards what we focus on, right? You aim small, miss small with your life because every decision that you make pulls you in a direction. We can't think that, that decisions we, that we make are, are innocent, that they're not going to have any effect. They will have an effect on us. And the challenge is that those little decisions build habits, and those habits build cultures, and those cultures determine how things turn out in our families. So when Paul is describing this old man here, he's describing someone who is completely not just devoid of any godliness, this is someone who is absolutely drawn into, with no regulation whatsoever, into a sinful lifestyle. So he says this is who it is, this is what it means to be someone who is not a believer, to be not a child of God. He says, but instead... Put on, the, put on the likeness of Christ, being in verse 20. Look at this. He says, But you do not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. He says, Since you belong to Christ, you, you should no longer walk like the lost or live like the lost. He says, You didn't learn Christ in this way. It speaks to the nature of our lives and how we're supposed to live. He says, we, didn't, we weren't actively pursuing this ungodliness, and all of a sudden Jesus was like, hey, here I am, and let's just continue to do what we're doing. He says that, that, that um, godly living comes from a revelation that Jesus said, okay, stop, that what you're doing is destructive to you. It's, it's, it's bad for you. It's bad for other people. We need to change the way that we do this. This also points to the, to the, to the truth that there's no education in holiness through ungodly living. John tells us in his first letter, 1 John chapter 1, that if we have fellowship with Christ, we will not practice wickedness. We're actually, as a, as a testament of, of being his child, what happens is that we're drawn towards holiness. We're drawn, drawn towards righteousness. And it's, it's uh, difficult for us to, um, to, to expect to navigate our lives in a godly way if we're, if we're not putting up boundaries about the decisions that we make. So he says that the, the, the power of the gospel is that God's presented himself to a bunch of blind, calloused people who saw in him a glorious light and the promise of true sight. Here's the point. I want you to think about this. Is that we have a choice. We have a choice about every aspect of our life. He says that, we, that, that this is who we were and this is who God has called us to be. If we're honest, we, we honestly, in, in theological conversations, we talk about choice all the time, about the ability to choose whether or not we're going to be a believer. Do, do we have the power of choice? Is, there, is, it, is it free will? Is it, is it God's 
uh, irresistible grace, that's all a different conversation. The point that I want you to be thinking about this morning is that we have a choice in how we want to live in the product of our lives. And to not make a choice is a choice. So what, what Paul is saying here is he says, look, you can either be the old man or you can be the new man, but understand that there is, there is nothing about Christ that is found in the old man. He says when we met Christ, our understanding changed. He says, that he, he says we began to hear Him and be taught by Him just as, at his, at, just as it is obvious that truth is in Jesus. We now turn away from unprofitable lifestyles. So, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here. That when you're presented with a choice of something that's going to make you sick versus something that's going to make you feel well, it doesn't take a whole lot of convincing. Right? So if I was to go on 169 and pull a dead, let's say, raccoon off the road and lay it here in a silver platter that, that I pulled off the highway, right? And on the, other, on the other side of the table, I have, a, I have a, a, a beautiful piece of china with a steak on it. A New York strip that's been grilled to perfection. Between that and the dead raccoon, the, the choice is obvious, right? This one's all bloated and nasty and full of maggots. This one is clean and cooked and presented well. This is, the, this is an example of the decision that we've got to make whenever we look at our, our, our lives, okay? When you sit down at the end of a day, and, you, and your, your day's complete, you sit on the couch, you turn on your TV, and you make a decision about what you're going to watch, are you going to choose the dead raccoon, or are you going to choose the New York Strip? When you decide how you're going to entertain yourselves, the things that you're going to invest your money in, how you're going to, to spend your weekends, how you're going to spend the, 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 the most formidable years of your life in your 20s and 30s as you're building your lives together, are you going to choose the dead raccoon or are you going to choose the New York Strip? That's the choice that, that Paul is laying out here. That who we were is corrupted and it's dead and it's disgusting and it's going to hurt us and it's going to hurt other people. So he says that we need to put on the likeness of Christ. He says that we're supposed to rid ourselves of its influence. And we do this because we know that if we continue in, in that way of life, we're going to be corrupted in accordance, in accordance to the lusts of deceit. What this means is a mind that is lost um, to infection and deception. So, what does that mean? So we're talking about the mind of someone who has, who has made the choice to not live as a new person, but as an old person. Morality is relative. And if we're not choosing to live by, by what God's Word says, what happens is that we start making compromises based on the culture around us. For instance, in most Western cultures, it's common for people to shake hands when they meet, right? But in certain parts of Asia... In Eastern cultures, like in India, people don't use toilet paper. So they use their left hand to clean themselves after they defecate. So you go to India and you're a left-handed person, you put out your left hand to shake someone's hand, it's going to be culturally inappropriate in that setting, but it's perfectly fine here. In other places around the world, lying is considered a terrible offense. But when Christian missionaries first came to Burma, 
The Burmese had no concept of what it meant. Lying in the Burmese culture is pretty common. At least it was when missionaries first came to Burma, and it led to massive disagreements. In most parts of the world, murder is considered to be frowned upon, right? But it would, would it surprise you that cannibalism was actually still practiced in Papua New Guinea as late as 2012, and in some Malaysian countries? The point here is that absent from God's divine work in our lives, morality is relative. We base our goodness on other people, our perception of other people's wickedness. We measure their, their ability to uh, be righteous compared to our, our goodness. This is, this is something that is, that is devoid from, from what God's Word says. So look at verse 23. He says, "...to be renewed in the spirit of your mind." as we put on the likeness of God. What that word means, um, this is interesting. The word renew actually is, um, can be translated as uh, like a newborn, like a brand new baby. He's saying, renew your mind, make it brand new. He says, uh, the, the, the language where he, he says, the spirit of your minds, that can be translated as the faculty of perceiving divine things or recognizing goodness and hating evil. So think about it this way, that a person who, is, who has put on the new man is someone who has redefined their perspective on the world. And they do it, look at verse, uh, look at verse 24, they do it by, by doing what, is, what has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. One of the challenges that we face, Scripture uses the, the analogy of, of new believers as being little children, babies, right? Paul tells the Corinthian church, I really, I just sincerely desire for you to, to want meat, to not be living by milk anymore. The, the fullness of what God's Word says about who He is. I want you to be mature and to know who He is. But you're still on milk. When a baby is first born, they can only see a certain distance. And even then, it's not that clear. They can make out this rough shape of your face. They can make out um, maybe some of your facial features. But their eyes haven't developed to the point to where they can recognize things quite clearly yet. So they rely on proximity to understand their, their, um, their surroundings. How mama and daddy smell. How they feel. The sound of their voices their body temperature, all these things are important for the baby to know when they're by their parents. But as they grow, their eyes develop to where they can see things more clearly. They can understand things more clearly. They can see things from a distance as they really are. One of the challenges for us is that, is that there are many believers who have never been discipled to the point to where they can actually see the truth. They are still like a brand newborn baby, blind and unable to be able to discern what is real and what is not real. And so what happens is that we have a bunch of spiritual babies crawling around that their eyes never develop to see the truth. He's saying, he's saying, I want you to be renewed in your mind. I want you to renew the way that you see things. I want you to change the way that you look at the world. This implies a choice to change the way that we see. 
Now there's two sides of this, of this, of this choice. The first is to reject the world. If we reject worldliness, that's part of it. To change the way that we, um, that we see the world is to, is, to, is to make a conscious decision to reject the worldliness. But we also have to accept and acknowledge godliness. One of the challenges is that for many of us, we may, we may spend all of our time working here, rejecting worldliness. Okay, I'm not going to watch that TV show. I'm not going to do those things. I'm not going to do those behaviors. But we never accept the fullness of godliness, and so we always feel like we're working against something. The, the, the challenge is that regeneration happens here. Our minds are renewed here in obedience, not just in, in, uh, in rejecting the, the wickedness of our world, and what happens is we, we begin to reject things that are bad for us, but we never gain the strength or the perspective to be able to see things as they truly are. So what does that make us do? It makes us trapped right here in the middle. Because we fail to make a choice, we live here. In anxiety. A person who doesn't understand who they are. And what happens is we, we lack the courage to step out and obey and accept godliness. And what, what it leads us to is we end up being like a little child, unable to see their surroundings, trapped outside in the cold in the middle of the night. And we wonder why we don't have any security in our lives. He says, put on this Christ-likeness. It's been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. God, makes, God commands us to make the conscious decision to mold our lives to His likeness. And that means that we've got, to, we've got to pursue righteousness and holiness of the truth. That means that we've got to live not just by what it says, but, but actually follow through. That's the hard part. Because the challenge is that whenever we step forward and we obey... Obedience typically comes from a place of ignorance. Because God's trying to teach us something in every situation, right? And so when He first tells us, go do this thing, there is an element of ignorance of what's going to be the outcome. It's the purpose of faith. Faith is belief in action, right? And so what He's saying here is that to, to renew our mind, to, to mold our likeness to Christ... It means that we've got to step forward and we've got to live by the truth. The truth is the thing that builds righteousness and holiness. And the greatest identity that God's given us is that we get to produce in our lives righteousness and holiness by our obedience to His Word. The truth comes from the Father, and He uses, uses it to conform us to His likeness. He says that in Romans chapter 12, He says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is our reasonable sacrifice. The challenge for us is that we don't lack the belief, we lack the courage to step forward and actually do what He's called us to do. Our spirits are in a constant battle against our flesh. And if we don't make the conscious decision to work against our flesh, what happens is we end up staying here in the old man. We love, we love to say that Jesus is our Lord and our Master, or our Lord and our Savior, we love the Savior part, but we, we don't actually focus much on the Lord part, on the Master part. 
It implies an actual way of life. We're required to make a daily choice to resist it by, by walking by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And the challenge is that not making a choice actually is a choice. I know that, you, that, that many of you are in the position in your life now where you're trying to figure out the culture of your family. You, you, you've been married for a few years now. You're trying to figure out, okay, now what, what are going to be the, what's our family culture going to be like? You have to make a decision about what your family is going to look like by, how, by the things that you practice every single day. Little things build a life. Little things like praying together before you go to bed. Like spending time in the Word in the morning. Like asking each other the same question every day. Besides, how was your day? Asking each other, hey, what did you read in God's Word today about our life? Because your life is my life. We are all in this together. So if, you're, if your spouse is reading the Word, that is just as relevant to you as it is to them. You are one flesh together. So asking each other, hey, what did you learn in the Scripture this morning? That is a tremendous asset for a married couple because two minds being attentive to what God is saying is way more valuable than one. Because while one of you may be distracted and unable to, to find something in the Word in the morning, you, your spouse may be the thing, the lifeline that God has given you to have some spiritual perspective for the day. Praying for each other is another thing that builds a godly family, builds a godly marriage. As you, even if you're laying in bed before you go to sleep, to reach over and to grab your spouse's hand and say a quick prayer for them before you close your eyes for the night. Consciously thinking about ways that you're going to build your life together. The things that you hang around your house. Is your house been decorated as a testimony of what God has done in your lives together? Consider that. Imagine this. Almost everybody has a hallway in their home. Imagine if you consciously made the decision to hang pictures from your life down the hallway as a timeline of God's faithfulness. Oh, here's the picture of us when we were dating. That we prayed for each other and God provided a godly partner for me. Oh, look, here's a picture of us on our honeymoon or at our wedding. This is an illustration of, of God's faithfulness and the opportunity to illustrate the gospel in our life. Oh, look, here's another picture of our family as it grows. Here's another picture of our life as it takes shape. Here's a picture of when you graduated from college, whenever you went back to school, after we got married, when we, when we slugged it out and made this happen. Oh, look, here's a testimony of this, of this trip that we took and God did incredible things, either on mission or on vacation. These are things that, that imagine that. Imagine being able to take people that come into your home and say, hey, look, let me tell you about the testimony of our lives together. And you start from that moment when you guys were dating and you walk them down the hallway and you use the pictures of your life to display the gospel. Little things like this build a life, a godly life, that put on the new man. Now growth is the solution for facing the challenges of our life. And if we refuse to grow, it ensures that we're always going to be frustrated by our sin. So your question for the car. In what ways are you intentionally taking off the old self and putting on the new one? As you're sitting in the car today waiting, waiting on traffic, what ways are you individually, you should be able to have these conversations with each other. If you don't feel safe to have these kinds of conversations with your spouse, we've got deeper problems that we need to talk about. What are ways that you are intentionally taking off the old self and putting on the new.
individually and as a family, as a couple? What's the testimony of your life? Are you making the conscious decision to live as a new person? How are you intentionally building your home on the righteousness and the holiness of the truth? You know, this, this can be a daunting task and it can be frustrating and it can be overwhelming. But you know, the sweetest part of building a life together is not the 401k, it's not the house, it's not the, it's not the full seats at holidays. The sweetest part of building a life together is being able to sit down with your best friend and say, hey, look, what do we want our marriage to say to the world? What do we want our relationship to say to everyone who knows us? And only you can answer that question. But you can't avoid the choice because not making a choice is a choice. And if you want to have stability in your marriage, if you want to have strength in your marriage to be able to grow, you can't let the ignorance of what's ahead deter you from making the choice. So be intentional with each other. How are you taking off the old man and putting on the new? If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.